continue our study in the uh, book of Acts. And some of you, as you're turning there, have probably um, heard phrases such as uh, feeling like you're between a rock and a hard place, or perhaps darned if you do, darned if you don't, no matter what you do, somebody is going to have a complaint. And I think or have something to say about that. And um, perhaps our our text today has something to do with that. This is a time where I think Christianity gets complicated. There are some very, very interesting challenges that present us, um, that are presented to us in our chapter today. And as I was studying this, um, I saw a little graph or a little illustration or meme or whatever floating around the internet. And uh, I think Nelson maybe... If you can put that up. I don't know if it'll show up too, too well, but it was a plea to pray for your pastor. So I'm not doing this just out of a selfish ambition to get you to pray for for me and the elders, but pray for me and the elders. But this is kind of uh, what's going on. It's like so um, in regards to uh, our pandemic, the first one, you can't open the church building yet. It's a huge health risk. You're wrong if you do. Or we need to open the church building. I need to be there and see everyone. What are you waiting for? How about this? Don't ever open the building again. Home is much better. My family is going to stay home for a while before coming back. Sorry, can't be there. Or here are 25 things you need to do if you want to meet in your building again. Or my wife, husband, dad, grandparent, uncle, sister, brother, niece just passed away from COVID-19. Or it's all a big hoax. It's a conspiracy, a media frenzy. Read this article, click on this link, don't be afraid. In fact, Simone received a phone call this week um, from a person who visited our church, I think twice, maybe two years ago, um, called to tell her how her husband, me, should run the church During this time, basically saying, you know what, basically it was all a big hoax and um, you need to just tell people it's all a big hoax. Meanwhile, other people are saying, wait a second, you need to be really cautious. Other people are very concerned. And so sometimes it's like, darned if you do, darned if you don't. So as we approach our text today, let's just remind ourselves where we have been. We need to uh, remember that this is now at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. The third missionary journey has concluded. He has traveled from Asia to Jerusalem, actually really from Ephesus. He's gone to Jerusalem and he has a couple of uh, uh, purposes for coming to Jerusalem. And Perhaps his primary purpose is to give aid to the poor. Um, Remember, he wants to go to Rome, but prior to going to Rome, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he has this aid package for the poor in Jerusalem. And this offering has been a major part of his campaign in Asia. And Paul spends a significant amount of time dealing with this, uh, this generous gift that he's hoping Gentiles will give to their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. So read 2 Corinthians. All of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is devoted to this subject. Significant 
um, passages in the book of Romans are devoted to this um, this aid package that Paul is bringing. So it was both humanitarian and ecclesiastical. It was humanitarian in the sense that Paul had a great um, concern for those brethren who were poor and who were starving and who were stricken by famine. So certainly he wants to um, meet that need. But Paul also sees this as an opportunity to perhaps um, um, highlight unity between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Remember, there's this huge rift between Gentiles and Jews. And we're, this, that, by the way, that's going to be central to our message today. So Paul is thinking if the Gentiles express their appreciation of um, the gospel that came from the Jews and they would show their appreciation by maybe taking care of the Jewish poor, perhaps... Um, the Jews and Gentiles, some of those, those barriers would, would come down. So this is a big issue for Paul. Um, and so that's kind of where we're, where we're at. So today we're going to be looking at Paul entering into Jerusalem. So a couple things as, as we look ahead today, some, some big themes that I hope to approach today. Number one is the church is never at peace. The church is never at peace. Divisions, um, or the church from the very beginning, back in Acts chapter 2, we see that there are internal threats and there are external threats. The external threats were usually those in regards to persecution. And the internal threats would, would, would rise up. And in fact, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, what did he say? He said this, he said, um, after my departure, savage wolves will come in amongst you. External threat. And then he says, even from amongst yourself, men will seek to draw you away, internal threats. So the church is never at peace. It is always um, in a warfare posture. So we want to keep that in mind. We also need to remember uh, and uh, think about that divisions that result from gossip and lies are always a threat. Division that results, that's one of the threats, and that would be an, usually an internal threat um, that results from gossip and lies is always a threat. But we also need to remember Christ is victorious. Um, we're going to see Paul arrested today. From here on out, he is a, he is a missionary in chains. But Christ is victorious, and even the arrest of Paul will not hinder the spread of the gospel. So, that's a, a little bit of where we're at today. If you will, join me as we uh, and follow along as I read our text today, and then we'll look a little more closely at our, uh, our passage. So, hear the word of the Lord. When we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. 
What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen him with Trophimus, the Ephesian, with, with him in the city and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and all the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort of all, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Pray the Lord's blessing upon his word. Well, what's going on here is Paul is now arriving in Jerusalem and um, he enters the city and he is completely and fully aware that trials um, await him. You'll recall that even when Paul was in Ephesus, he says, I need to go to Jerusalem and I know that trials and arrests and difficulties await me. He had also heard from um, two prophets who have said that he would um, endure persecution when he comes into Jerusalem. And so one of the things we want to deal with here, I kind of called this the Monday morning quarterback because it's really easy. You know what a Monday morning quarterback is, right? At the, on Monday, we all sit back and we think about the football game. Maybe not all of us, but some of us think about the football game that occurred the, uh, the prior day. And we said, this is what they should have done. I can't believe that the coach did this. I can't believe that they ran that play. I'm more of a hockey fan, and I sit there and think to myself, why did he make that stupid pass? What an idiot. He's a pro. And then I think, well, he's a pro, and who am I, who's not very good at the game, and trying to tell somebody who is way more talented than me how they should perform their job. So it's easy to look back at Paul here and look at the Jerusalem church and, and, and make decisions. 
Paul has come into Jerusalem. He's entered the city um, aware the trials await him. And many people, um, you read a lot of uh, Bible students and, uh, and scholars and commentators, and they will tell you Paul should have never gone to Jerusalem. That was a mistake. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. But it's easy to Monday morning quarterback this um, the Jerusalem church's actions. But let me give you a little bit of background as we, um, as we go forward. Perhaps if we have some historical context, it may help us to understand what this church was going through. You need to remember uh, the date. This is happening about 57, 58 A.D., um, somewhere in there. That's significant because this is about 12 or 13 years before the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus. So you have to remember, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., it's not like one day in 70 A.D. they decided, let's just go wipe this place out. It was the result of years, decades even, of growing animosity, growing violence, growing rebellion against the Roman Empire. So we're in that time frame when there is this really, really strong nationalistic fervor amongst the Jews against the Romans, and it's growing. We get this, um, Josephus in his, uh, the historian Josephus in, in his book called The Wars of the Jews or The Jewish Wars, he's very engaging in 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 describing this time frame and what's going on. And it's, he's uh, uh, very vibrant as to his descriptions of what's going on in Jerusalem at this time. And he describes this nationalistic fervor being at a, a fever pinch. Pitch. Felix was the governor. And Felix was dealing with uprisings and just uh, his approach to the Jews in general was very heavy-handed. In fact, Nero recalls him and replaces him with a guy by the name of Festus. We'll encounter both Felix and Festus as we go through the book of Acts. But um, Felix was brutal in his response to the Jewish uprisings. This then, of course, heightens the animosity between the Jewish people and their Roman overlords. There's this strong anti-Gentile sentiment um, as pro-Jewish attitudes are considered... um, I'm sorry, pro-Jewish attitudes consider foreigners with suspicion. And now Paul arrives from Gentile lands with a bunch of Gentile believers into this mix. This is what's going on. And he comes to James. James at this point is the leader of uh, the Jerusalem church and he meets with James and the elders. Um, This is not Paul's first meeting with James. They've met numerous times before. I just point that out because um, as you read about Paul's encounters and his meetings with James, you will see no schism between James and Paul. And though this may not have much to do with our text today, I'll just put it out there because we seem to draw this Um, sharp distinction between Paul and James, right? We read the book of James and we say Paul and James hated one another. They were opposed to one another. That's not true. They gathered together and they worked together um, as church leaders. And so James um, and the elders are meeting with Paul and the elders from um, from Asia and um, they they relate Paul and his um, 
assembly, they relate all of the great things that God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. That God has been working mightily, that the gospel has gone to the uttermost parts of the world, fulfilling Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul is saying that, look, we have great fruit. We have churches all over Asia. We have churches in Thessalonica, churches in Corinth, churches in, in Ephesus, Churches in Hierapolis, churches in Laodicea, churches are all over the place. We have churches in the regions of Galatia, and they are then the, the, the appropriate response is that they rejoice and glorify God. And so the Jewish church hears what God is doing in the Gentile areas, and they rejoice and give praise and glory to God. That's the right response when we hear of the great things that God is doing. Paul provides this detailed account of what God has been doing in the ministry that God has placed him. I love how Luke puts this. He says, after greeting them, he, speaking of Paul, related one by one, that is in detail, the things that God had done among the Gentiles. Paul recognizes or Luke is recognizing that everything that's being done in the ministry is done by the sovereign, powerful hand of God. Paul is his minister. Paul is his guy. However, this is being done by the power of a holy God. God is doing what God said he would do by bringing people of all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all peoples into his kingdom. This is a great work of God. And they glorified God. They give praise to God. So they make much of God when they hear of his mighty works. It's good to recount the great things that God has done. And then the Jerusalem cohort says, we give praise to God for what he's doing there. And now we want you to know that thousands of Jews have come to know Christ. And and they said to him, you see, how, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And so God's word is going forth and people, as I said, from every tribe and tongue and nation and nationality are coming to know Christ. The gospel is going forth. Christ is reigning from his throne on high, using his church to proclaim the gospel. And many are coming to know Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And if we just stopped there, we could all go away rejoicing, saying, what a wonderful passage of text. Praise God. I'm encouraged. But my title of this sermon is The Church Gets Complicated. Because now things get complicated. Christianity gets complicated. Because here's the problem. The Jews recount thousands of Jews have believed and they are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So, here you are and the Jews who are coming to know Christ, they're zealous for the law and they've heard that you, Paul, tell everybody to abandon Moses and to forsake the law. Remember the setting, anti-Gentile fervor is at a fever pitch. And here comes Paul. 
and the rumors that, per, that precede him. So here's the problem. The problem is what effect would Paul's arrival with Gentile brethren have on Torah observant Jewish Christians? What effect would Paul's arrival with the Gentile brethren have on Torah observant Jewish Christians? That's, our, that's one of our big problems. The question here, let me clarify, the question here is not what should Gentiles do. That got dealt with, remember, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Um, that got dealt with. That was resolved in Acts chapter 15. It's reiterated in verse 25. This is what should Jews do. When a Jew becomes a believer, becomes a Christian, what is their relationship to the law? That's the question here. Because rumor is that Paul says, if you're a Jew, you need to abandon the law. You need to abandon circumcision. You need to abandon uh, dietary laws. You need to abandon holy days. You need to abandon everything that smacks of Judaism you need to get rid of. And they're saying, no, we don't need, no. That's the conflict. That's the problem. Rumor has it that Paul has been teaching new Jewish Christians to abandon Moses. And the word there is apostatize. They're saying, rumor has it that Paul is teaching that religious customs and the Jewish way of life are incompatible with the Christian faith. So, so you can see this is a problem. This is what the church now needs to deal with. And, and it's kind of understandable, don't you think? It's not true, but it is understandable because Paul had taught salvation in Christ alone, not Jesus plus sacrifices, not Jesus plus circumcision, not Jesus plus holy days, not Jesus plus dietary laws. This is what Paul has been teaching. And he wrote to, in both his letters to the Romans and to the Galatians, that a person is justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. He made it abundantly clear in those and other letters that no one can be justified by the works of the law. In fact, he refused to have Titus circumcised in order to merely make peace with Judaizers. His words of warning were that if anyone presented a gospel of any works, of Jewish works or any other kind of works, they were to be accursed. So you can understand where this rumor came from. The solution that the church, the Jerusalem came, church came up with was this. Here's what you need to do, Paul. We need you to show respect for the law for those who are suspicious of you. And if you show respect for the law, they will then have reason to trust you. So we have four men who are under a vow. What we want you to do, Paul, is take up a vow as well, pay their expenses, and at the end of the vow, um, pay their expenses. It's pretty expensive um, because you'd have to offer a sacrifice. So um, that's what we want you to do. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about what kind of vow is this. And um, more likely than not, the four men who are currently under a vow have taken what's called a Nazarite vow. Well, that, you'll see that in, in Numbers chapter 6. And just a little preview of the future, unless God 
changes course on the next book we study will be the book of Numbers. So um, after the book of Acts, we'll be in the book of Numbers and we'll learn much more about Nazarite vows and other types of vows. But they're under a Nazarite vow. Usually it was a vow of thanksgiving. It was, uh, it was done uh, to give thanks to God for, some, for something, maybe deliverance or what have you. Um, and there are a number of different requirements. Those four people were probably already under that vow. Um, the minimum time frame that you could make a Nazarite vow was 30 days. And so they were under this vow. Paul now takes up a different type of a vow. He joins them, um, and it was a vow of purification, which we find in Numbers 19. And this was uh, pretty common for a Jew who was returning from Gentile lands. They would take up this vow of purification. It was a seven-day vow. And uh, so Paul seems to be catching these four at the, at the tail end of their Nazarite vow. He comes in with his, his vow of purification, and um, and the goal here is by displaying your um, adherence to these ceremonial um, laws, the people will see that you have not abandoned Moses, that you have respect for Moses, and um, that they will then begin to trust you. There are a couple of applications I'd like to draw from this and then maybe talk about a little bit of the difficulties that this passage of text presents to us. Um, Well, perhaps let me just go with the difficulties that this passage of text presents to us Um, and then the applications. One of the difficulties is is Paul right in doing this? And the majority position is that Paul has not sinned at all in taking these vows. But there is a minority position, and I think there's a very strong case for it, that Paul has erred, that he has no business taking up this, these types of vows. Um, and so... Real briefly, I'll give you my position, and you are welcome to completely disagree with me on this. Um, but my position affects how we, how we approach the text. Um, first of all, I went back and forth on this over and over again. One hour, I would say, man, Paul was right. He was dead on. No problem here. And then I'd go and I'd walk the dog and I'd come back saying, no, Paul erred. He was, this was not the right thing to do. And then 20 minutes later, it's like, well, maybe it was okay. I went back and I wrestled with this a lot. I say that not to create uncertainty in you that, um, oh, my pastor doesn't even know what he's talking about. But it's to let you know that your pastor, pastor wrestles with the scriptures. All right. I struggle with them too. Um, it's not like a light shines from heaven and gives me such clarity that I never question how to understand God's word. I, I wrestle with it. Just like you do. I think it's good that we wrestle with God's word. In the end, um, I've settled on the fact that I don't think Paul was in error at all. Um, even though a 
sin offering had to be offered. That's my biggest problem, is that a Nazarite vow required a sin offering, and that was my big stumbling block. How could he do that? But in the end, I'm going to just go along with, this is part of Paul living in Christian liberty. And a couple of reasons why. Number one, I see nothing in the text anywhere that seems to condemn Paul um, for this. There's nothing negative about what Paul has done. Um, So I recognize Paul was just a man. He could sin just like all of us. But I believe what's going on here is Paul is living out his Christian liberty. He explains this in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 19 through 23. Um, when we read this text, listen to what he says. He says, though I, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is living out his Christian liberty. Paul had rejected the law as a means of justification. So let me be clear about that. Paul has rejected the law as a means of justification. So if you are circumcising or observing dietary laws or holy days or anything like that, in order to be saved, Paul would say you're cursed. But if you're circumcising your children because that's your ceremonial custom under your culture, go ahead and do it. It doesn't mean one thing or the other. But go ahead and do it. Paul was not opposed to those things. If your conscience convicts you of certain dietary restrictions, then refrain from those dietary restrictions. But if you're refraining from diet or you're limiting your diet in order to show, um, in order to earn God's favor, you're cursed. Do you see the distinction? This is where Paul is at. Like I said, Christianity sometimes gets complicated. So Paul had rejected the law as a means of justification, but the non-salvific ceremonial aspects were not abandoned. Paul continued to celebrate the Passover. Um, he's, he wanted to be uh, in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So um, these are things that Paul continued to, uh, to observe. We recall that the Jerusalem Council affirmed that Gentiles did not have to become Jews. Remember, that was a big question. Do Gentiles need to be, become Jews before they can become Christians? That was dealt with in Acts chapter 15. And, and it's like, no, you do not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. You are saved by grace through faith, not through um, physical marks on the body. Not by eating or refraining from certain foods. That's not what makes you a believer. What makes you a believer is Christ. So the Jerusalem Council affirmed that Gentiles do not have to become true, but the inverse is true as well. Jews don't have to become Gentiles. Maybe a great example we find in the great missionary Hudson Taylor when he went to China to uh, minister there, he did something utterly radical, just absolutely radical. He adopted Chinese culture. That is, he began to dress in Chinese garb. He ate Chinese food. 
not much of a sacrifice there. Uh, well, I don't know. Sometimes they, they may eat. There, there might be some, I don't know. Most Chinese food I like, unless it's, yeah, yeah. But this was radical because generally, um, during the, this great missionary movement, people would, um, English people, British people, people from, uh, uh, from Europe would go to, to India or Asia or Burma or what have you, and they would try to make everybody British. Dress like us, talk like us, act like us, cut your hair like us, do all of those things. Oh, and here's the gospel. Um, in fact, if you're going to follow the gospel, you need to eat like us, dress like us. And Hudson Taylor said, no, I'm going to dress like the Chinese. And, and this is what he said. Let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. Now, we wouldn't think that's radical, but it was radical in those days. Hudson Taylor says, if it's not sinful, then let's behave like the Chinese. If it's sinful, we won't do it. So, number one, Paul lives out his Christian liberty here. Second, let us, uh, a second application. There is great need for humility in the body of Christ. Paul desired that the church would be unified and, um, and correct the misunderstanding. That's what he's hoping to do. And if Unifying the church required him foregoing his, quote, rights or freedoms, so be it. I have the right to ignore the laws of Moses because I'm free in Christ. Paul also wanted to make sure that people came to Christ. F.F. F. Bruce wisely stated, A truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. I love that. His emanci- he was an emancipated, a free man in Christ, but he was not in bondage to his own freedom. So Paul, um, I think there's a need for humility in the body of Christ. And then a third application um, I think is important here, and that is perhaps we have a misunderstanding of Christian liberty and this really came to light uh, for me. I think it was really highlighted when uh, Charlie taught in the book of Romans and we got to Romans chapter 14 and 15 that dealt much with Christian liberty because too oftentimes we view Christian liberty as what can I do? What can I do? I have the right to eat this way, drink this way, behave this way, talk this way, act this way. It's my right as a Christian. That's the wrong way to approach Christian liberty, I believe. I don't think that's what Christian liberty is about at all. Christian liberty is, how do I love my neighbor? It's a whole different question. Not, I have the right to do something. But, how do I serve and love my neighbor? True Christian liberty is a commitment to refrain from something out of love for others. So, do I have a right under Christ to act this way, dress this way, talk this way, behave this way, do this way? Probably so. But does it demonstrate love for your neighbor? That's a whole different question. A whole different question. Let me give you an an example, a, a contemporary example. I hate face masks. 
I hate them. I don't wear them. When I go out, I don't wear them. I'm not sure if it's just because I hate them or if it's because I'm confused because Dr. Fauci one day says they're, they're no good. The next day he says you should wear them. I don't know if he knows what or I don't know. I just don't know. And besides that, I'm a Christian. I have the right not to wear one. But here's the thing. You'll notice today, this morning, I was wearing one. Why? Because if my rights to not wear a mask, which I have full right to do as a believer, it's not sin, it's not unsin, it's neither. It's what we call, uh, it's neither. But if my brother or sister would say, listen, I'm uncomfortable coming to hear God's word and congregate with the people because of this potential risk, I think I'm not loving my neighbor if I don't wear a mask. I don't think I have a right under Christian liberty. Christian liberty demands that I love my neighbor. I'm not going to do it forever. Probably as a church, we will not do it forever. But if it, if it means somebody saying, I don't think I'm comfortable coming to church because of that, then I would say we need to learn how to love our neighbor. Just a thought. I don't think I have the right. But if you see me in Walmart, you probably won't see a mask. But anyways. Christian liberty, we don't view it in terms of what do I have the right to do as a Christian. But how do I humble myself and serve my neighbor? That's Christian liberty. I will refrain from that food. I will refrain from that act. I will refrain from that manner of dress. I will refrain from this, that, or the other. So as not to harm my brother or sister in Christ. That's liberty. The second, or the, the, the next application point is we need to understand the times. We need to be like the sons of Issachar in 1 Corinthians 12. We need to understand the times. And I think Paul understood the times. Paul understood the, the upheaval, the Jewish upheaval that was going on. Paul also understood, let's, as we read the text, let's understand the times. Thousands of years of culture are not just switched off. Thousands of years, people have circumcised their children, eaten kosher food, celebrated holy days. That just doesn't go off overnight. Paul understands this. Paul is patient. We need to understand the times and, and, and work in such a way. Paul, I think, the final application point is Paul wants to avoid needless alienation of those we desire to reach. Needless alienation. Paul's goal is to foster church unity without compromising the gospel. That's not always easy to do. Paul wants to foster church unity and yet not compromise the gospel. How do I walk that line? If you read this text and you say Paul is wrong for doing what he's doing, you at least have to acknowledge that Paul is hoping to walk that fine line. Maybe he erred. Maybe he erred. 
He's a man. I think I read even the best of men are just men at their best. And this would be Paul doing his best. He's a sinful man. And if you believe this text shows that he erred, then he erred. Paul's seeking to do what he thinks is best, but Christianity sometimes gets complicated. Well, it, conclu- it, it ends, the, the, our, our text ends with uh, what I've just put one plus one equals three because they added things up and came to an utterly and completely wrong uh, conclusion. Paul, Paul's attempts at unity were really unsuccessful. I don't think that the offering to the Jews went over very well and he doesn't really have much success in his attempts to appease um, uh, the the Jewish populace by going into the temple because when he goes into the temple to offer his, um, um, to make his, to conclude his vow, people um, came against him. It's kind of ironic where he goes to uphold the ceremonial laws um, and to adhere to the ceremonial laws that they were so um, fastidious about. It is there that he is accused of not upholding the laws of Moses. But, um, and so it didn't work. And then he's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And this is where we get one plus one equals three. They saw him with a Gentile book, uh, person. And so they assumed that he took him into the temple and thus defiled the temple. Paul never did that. But that gets them into an uproar. Folks, this is the problem. And I haven't spent much time on this, but this is the problem with um, Slanderous, false, gossipy speech. Gossipy speech was part of the reason behind this. Everybody says, Paul, that you are against the, the Jews. They say, right, they, whoever they is, but they say, I despise gossip. I think it's probably the worst sin in the church. It's probably split more churches than any other sin in the world. We can, we can deal with most others. Gossip. Just devastating to a church. We need to watch our speech. This, because of false speech, false accusation, people who knew nothing just assume a bunch of things. They see one thing, they see another thing, and they come up with a totally wrong conclusion. result of that, they start a riot. Paul is bound via um, the the Jewish guard who's in charge here, the tribune, um, comes down, brings people, um, seeks to quell this this controversy, this riot, and I love it. He's trying to figure out what's going on and nobody's being clear. One One person says this, another person says that. Paul is bound, he's put in chains, and he's taken into the barrack. We're going to see Paul in prison from here on out. And while Paul is bound, we should note that the gospel is not. The gospel will not stop. It will still get to Rome. It will still spread through the apostle Paul. You see, because the gospel cannot be bound by chains. God's sovereign purpose will not be thwarted by chains. It will not be thwarted by prison bars. It will not be thwarted through judicial trials, not even through slander and gossip. It will stop the gospel from going forth. Paul now becomes a minister, a missionary in chains. 
but he's still a missionary. So I'll close with this. Number one, we need to remember the church is never at peace. Internal threats, external threats are always coming at us and coming at this one here is coming at Paul. It's coming to take Paul out. If we can, if the kingdom of darkness says we can get rid of their big leader, we're good. They try, they don't. Internal threats and external threats. So the church is never at peace. But let me say this: while the church is never at peace, the head of the church, Christ, is ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father reigning from heaven as Lord of lords and King of kings. He is Lord over his church corporately, and he is Lord over you, and he rules sufficiently and perfectly, and for that we can take comfort. So if you will, let's pray, and we will close with a final song. Father, we thank you for your word this day. We, um, this, was a, this is a tough one, Lord, a tough passage of text. I pray, Father God, that you would illumine our hearts through your spirit, that you would open our eyes by your gracious hand, that we might see what you would have for us from your word today. Help us to love our neighbor. Help us, Lord, Father God, not to use our liberty as a means of causing another person to, uh, to struggle in their Christian faith. We thank you for the liberty you've given us. We thank you that we're not saved by works of the law, but through Christ. We thank you for that. And now, Father God, let us live out that liberty that you might be honored and glorified. Have mercy upon us this day. Protect us and keep us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll